good to see you this morning in person. Uh, wow, just what a difference from last week. Um, can we have a little family conversation? I want to talk to you uh, at home. Um, so let, let me just say at the outset, there are good reasons uh, not to be here. I understand that. Some of you uh, older, fragile, health-wise. But let me speak to you who do everything else. Your kids are in the schools, you're interacting at work, and you've chosen to stay away this morning, not for health reasons. Can I encourage you? Come back. We have seats. Come back. I don't think this is a more unsafe place than the other things that you're doing. So, again, just for those of you who have chosen this one thing not to do for reasons of safety, let me encourage you to reevaluate that. There is great benefit uh, in assembling in person. And again, understand that some of you cannot and you should not. So I'm not speaking to you. But those of you who, who are otherwise healthy and, and your lives involve fairly normal activity with the physical distancing and all of that, um, let me encourage you to just give some thought to, to returning. It's not a matter of judgment, just an encouragement because... You will be blessed by being present, and others will be blessed by your presence. Well, let's take our Bibles, and uh, we're in the Gospel of John this morning, John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. Let's look there together. The closing chapter of this Gospel. John's wrapping things up. We have one more message next week in this, and then we'll be on to the book of Genesis. I'm looking forward to that time, uh, though as I get closer to it, with uh, some measure of trepidation, uh, especially for the opening chapters. There's some challenging things there, so I'm asking for your prayer that I get it right, okay? <laughs> I really want to get it right. All right, John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. Would you join me in, in your own Bibles? If you use the church Bible, it's 907. Setting here is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, called Tiberius in this text. Jesus had just given a miraculous catch of fish, and now they've eaten, and Jesus addresses the Apostle Peter. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is God's word. Would you join me as we... Ask for the Lord's help in this time. 
Lord, we are asking that, that you would teach us what we do not know. We're asking that you would give to us what you know we need but do not have. And Father, that you would, looking at us, see what we need to be, that you would cause that to happen in us, what we are not, Father, make us. We know that this happens through the proclamation of your word. And so we pray that the meditations of our hearts, that the words of my mouth in this time will be acceptable in your sight. And we pray this, that Christ may be glorified. Amen. Well, there was a poet in the, uh, in the 5th century named uh, Claudian. He wrote, Men are raised on high in order that they may fall more heavily. Now, in contemporary language, we'd simply say, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. You've heard that expression, I'm sure. It's true in a physical sense, but it's also true in a social and relational sense for those, in particular, that are preening and overly confident in themselves. Well, in this, the Gospel of John and the other Gospels, we, if you've read through them, you see that Peter is a prominent disciple. He is confident, he is bold, he has a big personality. But he falls hard by denying even knowing Jesus. Now, if we didn't know the story I think it would be altogether surprising to us to find Peter anywhere in the story of the early church that's recorded in Acts. And yet he is there. Peter is used by the Lord in a mighty way. And I would say all because Jesus asks him the question, do you love me? Now, from the beginning of this gospel, John's objective has been to reveal Jesus to us so that we, the reader, the we, the one who would hear this, so that we would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is to say the Messiah, the one who is predicted by the Scriptures, that we'd come to understand that truth. And not only the Christ, but as the Christ, the, the true Son of God, so that by believing in Him, we would find eternal life in Him, in His name. Now, as I said, we're here in the closing verses of this gospel. John here makes the vital connection that we need to know this morning, that truly believing in Jesus means loving Jesus. But of course, when we hear that, I think we're going to ask ourselves the question, I asked it of myself, I asked it of this text, what does it mean to love Jesus? To say we love Jesus, what does it look like in our lives? How do we live that out day to day? And I would say, in a sense, Peter here in our text represents all of us. Against the backdrop of, of Peter's spectacular failure in his very specific and vocal denial of Jesus. Here, in this story we read, Jesus' reaffirmation of Peter shows him and us what it means to truly love Jesus. Jesus asked Peter that vital 
question, do you love me? And this morning, I want each of us to consider what it means to say that you love Jesus. From this conversation between Jesus and Simon, I want to focus then on three matters of evidence of our love for Jesus. And I'll give them to you up front, and then we'll unpack it together. First of all, loving Jesus means being humble. Second, loving Jesus means serving his church. Third, loving Jesus is dying to live. Being humble, serving his church, and dying to live. First of all, loving Jesus means being humble. (laughs) Humility doesn't seem to be a thing that, that matches up with our expectation of the corporate boardroom, the political realm, or professional sports. Self-promotion seems to be the way to get ahead in all of these realms. I was reminded of heavyweight boxing great Muhammad Ali. His confidence outside of the ring declaring, I am the greatest. I think there's even a poem that he wrote, I am the greatest. Or maybe somebody wrote it for him. But it seemed to almost guarantee his success inside the boxing ring. Humility is not something you often see. But for a disciple of Jesus, humility is truly the only way. The disciple of Jesus behaves in an opposite way to these, the Muhammad Ali and whatever success has in the world. Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? the question that he asks. Now, what does Jesus mean by these? Do you love me more than these? These. What is these? And I take it that Jesus is saying, is your devotion to me greater than the other disciples? Now, that's a very fair question. Why? Because Simon Peter had effectively made the claim that he was more devoted than the other disciples. He effectively had said that. And I'll tell you where. When Jesus told his disciples on the night of his betrayal that they would fall away, here's what Peter said. Matthew records it. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. He compared himself, though they all fall away, I will never fall away. Peter claimed to be far more devoted than the others. And then even when when Jesus specifically told Peter that he would deny knowing him three times, not once, but three times, Peter doubled down. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. I'm sure what Peter said so, so very boldly to Jesus was now brought to mind as Jesus repeats this question, Do you love me? Not once, but three times. I have no doubt the connection was not lost in him. Now this, of course, His denial wasn't the only time Peter's bravado got him into trouble. He often seemed very confident in himself. It was this very lake that they're on the shore of where the disciples were in a boat, and Jesus came to the disciples walking on the water. And Peter wanted to walk out to Jesus on the water. His confidence, I take it, was misplaced because instead of looking to Jesus... He looked at the water and he began to sink. That's Matthew 14, 29 and 30. It was Peter who tried to tell Jesus that Jesus' plan 
that he was going to die? Peter tried to tell him that Jesus was wrong. No, this is not going to happen. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. I don't know what kind of tone he used, but that's quite a rebuke. It was Peter in the garden when Jesus was being arrested. It was Peter who pulled the sword. Swinging it, he injured that servant of the high priest. It's John 18. But here, here by the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus' repeated questioning of Peter's devotion, Peter's pride was confronted. And Peter, we're told in the text, was grieved. He was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And in what seems to be a moment of surrender, Peter appeals not to his own commitment, not to the strength of his own promises. He doesn't promise to do better next time. He doesn't give any proof of his devotion. He simply appeals to what Jesus knows. Lord, verse 17, you know everything. You know that I love you. You know my heart. You know. You're the judge of the heart. You know that I love you. And I take it that Peter's heart right now is where it needs to be. He's now, he's now looking to Jesus, trusting Jesus, and clearly aware of his own inadequacies and his failures. He is humbled by Jesus' question. Pride is such an insidious sin, isn't it? It elevates self. And I would take it that prior to this, Peter had confused his own exuberance and his own initiative towards Jesus. I believe he confused it with love. And Jesus showed Peter how his pride was in fact at odds with his devotion to Jesus, not, not his evidence of it. Peter thought that his exuberance was the evidence of his devotion for Jesus. But it just revealed his pride. As I thought about this, I, I wonder, do we, do we get this wrong sometimes in our own lives? Do we confuse our promises to God with love for Him? Do we put our confidence, our proof of our love in what we might do for Jesus? How admirably we might serve Him? And perhaps we look around at others who are believers and compare ourselves, well, I do more, therefore I love Jesus more. Or maybe we serve in, in a way to, to show others how devoted we are as disciples. Setting up ourselves as models for others. Uh, this is why the Apostle Paul, uh, in his instructions to Timothy, he instructs him not to entrust a novice with leadership responsibility in the church. It's a section in the list of elder qualifications. He warns that a new convert may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Pride brings us into condemnation to be puffed up into the condemnation of the devil. The very thing that the evil one is condemned for in us. Identifying with that. But you know, it's not just those who are new in the faith. Pride can grip the hearts of those who have been believers for a while. Left unchecked, great damage can be done in the local church. And John's third letter, 
he writes to this Gaius. And John references in that letter, it's not an often read book, uh, letter, it's very short, but John references this, this one named Diotrephes, who had been stirring up dissension in the church. He describes him as talking wicked nonsense. And John gives the reason, the reason for this evil perpetrated by, by Diotrephes, verse 9, saying he likes to put himself first. That's pride. It's a love of self and not love for Jesus. He likes to put himself first. With pride, there's, there's no compatibility with loving Jesus. Pride and loving Jesus do not go together. How many times have Diotrephes and his spiritual descendants given by, uh, overwhelmed by pride, how, how often have they infected the church bringing conflict and stirring up dissension? Proverbs 3.34 says, Towards the scorners, he, that is God, is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. I don't doubt that, that Peter remembered this very moment that he was speaking with Jesus when in his own letter, his first letter, he quotes this very proverb, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride makes you an enemy of God. In pride, you're opposing him. You can't love Jesus and oppose God. Therefore, we must be humble before him. Humility starts with trust, with trust in who Jesus is. And let me just pause here for a moment. So the beginning of a relationship with Jesus, the beginning of you loving him, is understanding that he loved you first. It's understanding who he is, that he is the Son of God. It is understanding that Jesus lived on this earth, walked in perfect, sinless righteousness in every act and deed and thought that he was falsely accused of blasphemy. He couldn't be accused of blasphemy because indeed he is God. But he was accused of blasphemy and he was handed over to Roman authorities to be brutally tortured and hung up on a Roman cross. But the torture that the Lord Jesus experienced wasn't primarily physical, but of the very fact that on that cross, all, all of your sin and mine if you've believed in him, all of that was, was heaped upon him. And in his death, God the Father looked at that and accepted it as a perfect substitute in your place and mine. Humility starts with understanding before God that you need that. That you don't have the righteousness in yourself. That you don't have the goodness in yourself to Present yourself to God. That the only thing that you have is what Christ has accomplished for you. And if you have not done so, let me encourage you. Put your faith in Him now. Now. Pride is something we must continue to battle. Let's check our hearts and repent of any pride. Our confidence ongoing is never in ourselves. Our confidence is in Christ alone. 
Loving Jesus truly means being humble. Second, loving Jesus means serving his church. Now, you might be wondering where I'm going here. But I think you'll agree that, that a man can have deep affection for his wife and children, but if he never spends any time with them, if he never seeks their good, if he never provides for them in any way, would we call that love? Take it a step further. If that man does spend time with them, but has no real concern for what they truly want and desire and need, if he provides lavish entertainments but no stable place to live and disregards their most important needs, would we call that love? See, there's an affection that we can have for an object that cares little about the object, but is all about our desire. People have done all kinds of things out of their supposed devotion to Christ. And, and maybe like me, you have cringed when a, maybe a politician has quoted some passage of Scripture out of context to promote a, a particular social policy, claiming that that policy is what Jesus would surely want. I, I've seen it in the most egregious way, suggesting that access to abortion helps the poor, that somehow Jesus would want that. Now, people will continue to debate the ethics of how Jesus' teaching should be applied. His ethics should be applied to public policy. But what is clear from Jesus' teaching is that loving him is ultimately expressed in not what public policies are put together, but it is ultimately expressed in loving his own. We love Jesus by loving his people. And we love Jesus own ultimately by serving his church. And I'll show you how I get there in this passage. Now, let me just take a brief aside. Um, much has been made, and, and some of you perhaps have studied this, much has been made of the different uh, New Testament Greek words behind love. Agape, phileo, agapeo. Peter's use of those words and Jesus' initial use of the word agapeo and then switching to phileo. I, I'm just going to say, I'm going to lay out my cards right now. I don't think there's anything but style on John's part in that. And where I rest on this is D.A. Carson, so you can look him up if you don't agree with me. But that's, that's where I land. So I don't think there's much to be made of the different words because they're used synonymously and interchangeably. So that's the aside. And some of you who wanted me to deal with that this morning, I'm not going there. But it is true, though, that Peter had a unique apostolic calling for the sake of Jesus' sheep. When we look at the text to feed, tend, feed. Those words are used. Two times feed, one time tend. It's what you do with sheep. Verse 15, feed my lambs. Verse 16, tend my sheep. Verse 17, feed my sheep. Now, certainly, there's a great encouragement in this passage to think about the heart of the pastoral calling, that, that it distills down to the very simple task of feeding Jesus' sheep by ministering the word of God. And I could have preached a sermon on that, but I'm not. Because I want the broader application that extends beyond the pastoral office for every single disciple of Jesus. So this isn't just a message for pastors. This point isn't just for pastors. So what we need to do is, for a moment, set aside the verbs, feed and tend. These are the same things that Peter was specifically called to do. Rather, what I want us to do is focus for a moment on the nouns, lambs, sheep. These, these belong to Jesus. The sheep and the lambs are his flock. And why? Because of what he had accomplished only a few days earlier on the cross. Jesus speaking 
about what he would do to save and protect his own sheep. John chapter 14, he had already said this. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus laid down his life for the sheep at the cross. He secured his own sheep a place in his eternal flock. And so where do we find this flock? Well, hopefully you're with me on this. It's Jesus' church. It's the church that Jesus said he would build. The church that he said, about which he said, the very gates of hell would not be able to stand against it, Matthew 16, 18. The church that is ultimately built on the foundation of his sheep, who are people who confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The collection, the the expression of his sheep is local churches, assemblies of Jesus' sheep, just like this one. You see, before Peter was called to feed Jesus' sheep, he was called to be one of Jesus' sheep when he made that same confession. Matthew 16, when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus made Peter his sheep when he affirmed that. Peter, knowing that, was revealed to him not by flesh and blood, but by the Father who is in heaven. Jesus secured his sheep by laying down his life for his sheep. Now, Peter will fulfill the calling to feed and tend, but he will die. Even, in fact, Jesus tells him how he will die. And then there will be others who are called to feed Jesus' sheep who will follow and carry on the task. All for the sake of Jesus' sheep, his church. Now, as Jesus said, John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. Peter's secondary. As a pastor, I'm secondary. I'm third, I'm fourth, I'm way down the line. I have no great importance in this. I have a small task to do, but they are Jesus' sheep. They hear his voice, and they follow him. So, brothers and sisters, you're not an apostle, and you may not be a pastor here this morning that is called for a time to to feed Jesus' sheep. But know this. If you truly love Jesus, if you have truly confessed that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again on the third day, if this is you, Jesus' other sheep should matter to you because they matter to him. Jesus told a parable about sheep and goats. Matthew 25. And in that parable, Jesus equated serving the needs of what he describes as the least of these my brothers. He equates serving them with serving him. Jesus said this, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. In that parable, Jesus describes those who serve Jesus by serving the least of his brothers, he calls them righteous. And to the ones who did not, who did not meet him in his need through these other people, he calls them wicked. Truly, verse 25 of Matthew, sorry, chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 40, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it, to me. 
So here we are, brothers and sisters. We are, we're the part of the company of Jesus' sheep, the church. And if you love Jesus, you'll love his sheep, meaning you'll serve them because you want to. I don't want you to get me wrong in this point. Our service for Jesus in the church. It's not a merit-based system where, where we amass a list of good deeds done and, and somehow gain Jesus' approval. No, it's not it. The foundation for our relationship with Jesus is not what we might do for him. It's what he's already done for each of us by laying down his life for us, his sheep. So, really, the service to Jesus, service for Jesus, is ultimately the outworking of his love that has already been poured into us. It's the, the real effect of grace. In, uh, in his first letter, the Apostle John said this. It's on the same topic. We know that we have passed out of death into the life, into life. So that is to say, we've been saved. We're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer strangers. We're no longer condemned. We know that we have passed out of death into life, and he gives the evidence, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, 1 John 3, 14. I, I just saw this, this quote yesterday uh, by John Stott. Uh, Charlie's put it up on his uh, webpage. The Christian life is not just our own private affair. We have been born again into God's family. And not only has he become our father, but every other Christian believer, whatever his nation or denomination, has become our brother or sister in Christ. We know we've passed from death to life because we love the brothers. So how might you serve Jesus' sheep? How might you love them. And hopefully you get it. It's not just an affection. I have a good disposition towards you. Some are called to feed Jesus' sheep, like Peter, like pastors today. Some are uniquely able to show mercy in particular ways. Some are able to give abundantly of the resources, give meals, time, money, some find ways to encourage and lift others up with, with words. Some serve Jesus by facilitating the gathering of his people, maintaining a facility, keeping us secure, managing finances, handling logistical matters. And if you don't recognize any of that, I just described our deacons <laughs> and all the teams that are with them. Some are able to organize and lead. Some are artistic and musical, helping you express your praise to God. Some are simply present, sitting next to you, willing to speak to you, ready to extend a hand, yes, and give a hug, listen and pray. Oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you, if you love Jesus, if you truly love him, you're, you'll serve his sheep. You'll serve his church. Third, if you love Jesus, you'll die to live. Now, I know, that's a paradox. Die to live. 
And a paradox, you know this, is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory proposition that ultimately proves to be true. Now, here's how I see this. Jesus told Peter that there was a specific death sentence hanging over his head. But wrapped up in that, that death meant the glory of God. So he's going to die in a particular way, and that death meant the glory of God. And I take it that that which is on behalf of a believer, ultimately for the glory of God, for the disciple of Jesus, that is ultimately life. Verse 18 of John 21, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Then the parentheses. Seems confusing. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, the language here is challenging and the imagery is, is a little hard to grasp. I think Jesus is saying, though, this. When you're old, you're going to die by crucifixion. You'll stretch out your hands on a beam. The dress you part could be bind you. They will carry you where you do not want to go. That will be against your will. Now, the New Testament gives us no record of Peter's death. In his ecclesiastical history, uh, Eusebius records that the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul were both martyred around the same time under Emperor Nero. His history tells us that Paul was killed by beheading and Peter by crucifixion. And tradition has it that Peter requested that he, in fact, be crucified upside down. Perhaps you've heard that. I don't think it's as important, the form of Peter's death, apart, except for the simple fact that Jesus told him that his death would be against his will, not his desire, wouldn't be natural causes, and his death ultimately would bring glory to God. Peter's saying, or Jesus is saying to Peter, you will die... You will glorify God in it. And the big conclusion from this is, you're not in control of your life. I am. He's telling him how this is going to unfold. Dying to live. The point I'm making here from this, from Peter's example and from what Jesus taught him, dying to live means dying to self. Dying to live means orienting, orienting our lives to Christ, surrendering our wills to His, subjecting our temporal goals to kingdom goals, with the certain hope that we all have that Jesus will return and He will reveal alive to all creation those who belong to Him, including us, if we're in Christ today. We will be revealed alive to all creation. That's Romans 8. And, and so if you're dying to live, that's you too. And this is nothing different than what Jesus taught. Luke 9, Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now we think of those words of Jesus and maybe we've heard them so often that they, they kind of bounce around in our heads or just like we just, we don't really think about it. So for Take up his cross. If anyone would come after me, he would take up his cross. Substitute any means of your capital execution, okay? Electric chair, hanging, 
firing squad, guillotine, lethal injection. I, I know, it, it's gruesome. It's extreme because that's what needs to happen in a spiritual sense to love and follow Jesus. Jesus said, take up your cross. He said this literally before he took up the cross for us. How much richer is that truth after Jesus died and then showed himself alive, died by a cross? So if we truly love Jesus, like Peter, we are called to follow Jesus through death to eternal life. Now that's first, it first happens that death to self is a spiritual killing of the sinful, prideful, rebellious old man. We kill it. Jesus kills it by our repentance for our sins. When we come to faith in Christ, that old man is killed and buried. But then it's also in a physical death. It's before all of us. And it's necessary, this physical death, because, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the nor, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. That's a future hope. But until that day, we live by dying to ourselves daily. That's how we're all called to follow and love Jesus. Each of us must take up our cross and follow. Each of us must regard our sinful lives as dead in Christ at his cross, but as a result, being spiritually alive. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.20, very familiar verse, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live, I live in the flesh. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me say that because I muddied it up and it's so vitally important. I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so having been spiritually made alive, made alive spiritually in Christ, we, we love him. And we live differently. And the focus of our mind changes. Paul explains this so clearly in Colossians 3. If then, this is the beginning of the chapter, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Brothers and sisters, we must die to live. Peter was confronted with the, own, with the reality of his own certain death by martyrdom. Each of us lives each day with the certainty of our own death somehow, some way, unless Christ returns in the meantime. But if he does not, we're going to the grave. 
That is the consequence for our sin. But you can be alive today. You can live in the life that Jesus has given to you if you acknowledge that he died and rose again and that his death was for you and that his life is for you. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So do you love Jesus? Are you dying so that you may live? The world is crumbling around us. It's been a tough year last year. It's been a tough week. And, and we might think, is, is any of this going to last? Maybe not. And you know what? It matters, but not as much as we might think. Kingdoms, leaders, they'll come and go. And we, brothers and sisters, are sojourners in this world. We are, we are making our way in this present evil age, making our way, seeking to, to acknowledge who the ultimate king is. And as a church together, we're, we're seeking to point people to the king who will reign. And until he comes back, we have been given the power to live each day by dying to ourselves and living by faith in the Son of God. That was the key to Peter when we meet him again in Acts chapter 2. He died to self and he proclaimed Christ and myriads of people came to Jesus in faith. And brothers and sisters, if we love Jesus, let's die to ourselves and together we'll proclaim Christ. And who knows who the Lord Jesus will call to himself. Well, let me wrap this up. Remind you of these points. Do you love Jesus? Understand, we love him because he first loved us. That's 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved, but because he first loved. And if you have acknowledged that, if you you know that to be true and you love Jesus. It means you have humbled yourself before him. If you love Jesus, it means you desire to serve him by serving his people in the church. And it means that we live each day dying to live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for the Lord Jesus and for the power of his resurrection. Without that, we really have no hope in this world. And that Jesus went to the tomb having suffered on the cross for our sins as a glorious gift that he gave to us that we might be forgiven. But Father, all of that would have made no sense if he never walked out of the tomb. And we praise you, Father, that indeed he did to ensure not only, not only that we have the power to live in this world now by denying ourselves, but that we have an eternal hope when he returns. So keep us faithful to that day faithful in humility, faithful in service, faithful in dying to ourselves so that Christ may be glorified in us.